There are some stories in Jewish history that are so bizarre, so fascinating, so completely wild that they feel straight out of a movie. Join hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab for Season 3 of Jewish History Nerds, a new season of intrigue, mystical realms, and bloody battles. Jewish History Nerds will keep you on the edge of your seat as you learn all about some of the craziest and most amazing, yet largely unknown stories that fill Jewish history books. Jewish History Nerds Season 3, hosted by Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, your weekly reminder that people can do cool stuff when they're cool people. I'm Margaret Kiljoy. I'm your host, sort of, usually. This time, it's a reverse episode that I like to call Ren Explains Things to Me. Eh? Eh? Instead uh-huh. of the book, Men Explain Things to Me. I mean, yeah, I'll <laughs> take it. Scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I do like explaining things on occasion when I know about them. Excellent. Uh, that's Ren, Ren Arai, who is the author of Nourishing Resistance, which is a book available from PM Press. And basically, Ren is the person that whenever I have like, food history related questions is a very strange life that I lead that this comes up regularly that I have food history related questions and I ask Ren. So Ren has agreed to do a whole reverse episode for us. Hi, Ren. Yes. And I should just mention I'm the editor of Nourishing Resistance, not the author. Um, okay. Just because there's so many different contributors. I want to make sure to highlight that. But yeah. yes. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Cool. So. Wait, hello. I want to I have to introduce oh, everyone else first, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Because Sophie... Sophie Lichterman hey. is our uh, producer. I forgot your title for a moment. I don't have a title. Uh, God King. And our audio engineer is Ian. Everyone say hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, everybody. <laughs> We're here in a surprise twist. I really love this. Yeah. Bye, bye, bye Ian. Bye, Ian. Bye. <laughs> have a good recording. <laughs> I'm honored to be here on the day that that Ian makes a guest appearance. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and our theme music was written for us by On Woman. And now, Ren, I have no idea what this episode. I have a vague idea because you you tell me things that I'm not allowed to research because I tell other people when they come on what they're not allowed to research, but I try not to give it away. Totally, so, yeah. I don't quite know what's going to happen. Great, love that. So um, I was wondering, Margaret and Sophie, first off, a question. When you think of revolutionary movements and countercultures in like the 1960s and 70s, what comes to mind? Hippies. Yeah. Hippies. Yeah. Great answer. Free love. Black Panthers. Yes. Yeah, you're like naming a lot of things that are going to be in this episode. Community. Um, community. Yeah, totally. So. Um, I'm glad I asked y'all this question. Great start. Uh, but when you think of these things, do you think of food? I mean, I'm always thinking about food, but that's just me. Totally. <laughs> that's yeah, just yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> but to this specific question, I don't think the first thing I thought of was food. Totally. Um, yeah. But when you do think about food, like food of the 60s and 70s, what comes to mind? Okay, well, I... I briefly covered, because of a thing you sent me on an episode, I briefly covered uh, whole wheat bread as relates to this. Mm. And I also think of soup and 
Those are it. And then like pretending that drugs are food. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. I think I think fondue. Fondue. Wow. You know, fondue is not everything else is in this episode, which I think actually probably has more to do with the fact that Margaret and I talk about history too much. <laughs> so that like even though you don't know what this is about, you've kind of gotten a, a little bit of a head start. But everything that you said is gonna make an appearance except for fondue. So I'm gonna have to like really go back to the drawing board on that one. Okay. <laughs> we'll reconvene here I also next don't know week. If- I also don't know if I've ever had fondue, so um, maybe I need to go, like, try it or something. Anyway, this episode is going to be about what I would, like, loosely call counter-cuisine. Counter-cuisine is what Warren Belasco, who wrote a book on the subject called Appetite for Change, calls the food of the hippie movement and counterculture of the 1960s and 70s. And we're going to focus on food in the leftist and anarchist strands of the broader counterculture, but it's still kind of going to be about hippies. And it's a, the two-parter actually has a different focus on each, each side of the part. Um, but we're going to start by talking about the diggers. Oh! So I'm... <laughs> Your response, Sophie, made me think you had no, something to No, I just got say. excited. So I want to I, I make I space for that. I just got excited over the topic. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, so I want to start with the San Francisco diggers. Not the English I'm Revolution sure diggers. diggers. Mm-hmm. No, I do. Yeah, I did mention that you have done an episode on the English Jiggers okay. before um, and that people can go back and listen to it. And then it's with John Darnell from the Mountain Goats. But no, we're going to talk about the San Francisco Diggers and the San Francisco Diggers. They actually were inspired by the original Diggers. And just in case listeners haven't heard that episode, um, the original Diggers were 17th century English communalists. They occupied a hill outside London and planted it with beans, carrots, and other veggies. And they wrote these really radical pamphlets about how, quote-unquote, the earth should be a common treasury for all. And the San Francisco diggers named themselves after these original diggers, and they drew a lot of influence from them. I should say that you could do, like, an entire episode on the San Francisco diggers. They did so much um, in the three short years they existed. But as a food history nerd, I'm mostly interested in their outsized impact on food-based mutual aid. So this segment is going to focus on that. Um, But I do want to start with a little bit of background so we know, like, who the diggers are and how they showed up on this scene. So the diggers were first and foremost a theater troupe, um, and they were formed by members of the San Francisco meme troupe, which apparently is spelled like mime but pronounced like meme, and I don't know why. Well, like mimetic, right? No, I don't know how you—no, wait, mimetic is spelled like meme, the internet thing. Yeah, I, I have no idea, but I've heard it pronounced as a San Francisco meme troupe, which is interesting to me. Okay, um, but they were, but they were like did, miming. They, yeah, they did other street theater as well. Okay, they weren't just like putting like captions under photos and then posting them up around places. I mean, no, but they kind of were doing like the 1960s version of that. That was sick. Okay, cool. You know, and the diggers will too. Like they're all about like thinking about how the message gets across. Okay. I admittedly don't know as much about the meme troupe as I do about the diggers, but from what I can tell, they they're, that is a through line in both of these projects. Okay. So they were formed by members of the meme troupe in fall 1966. Uh, the troupe started in 1959. It performed free political satire, and it still exists, actually, and continues to perform around California. Peter Coyote, one of the founders of the diggers, credits the troupe with introducing him to a way of looking at the world and analyzing it according to inherently Marxist principles. And he said that this education was, it wasn't necessarily doctrinaire, but analysis. Mm -hmm. Class, capital, who owned what, who did what, who worked for what. Okay. So in the summer of 1966, members of the meme troupe established an organization working with others called the Artist Liberation Front. The ALF, not to be confused with (laughs) another ALF. ALF. Um, opposed the established art worlds and big art foundations. And they were planning a street art fair, and some future diggers were involved in these planning efforts. And what I'll call the digger contingent got really upset when other members of the ALF wanted to let vendors sell things like food at these fairs. Hell yeah. They were like, this fuck contingent that. believed in a, Everything's free. Yeah, they were like, everything should be free. <laughs> yeah, they believed in a gift economy. Where everything should be given away for free, and that was like the line in the sand Uh that they drew. So they split off. 
Um, and one of the first things they did as diggers was to circulate these mimeograph broadsides. And no one is entirely sure what the first broadside was. Um, but the Digger Archives website argues that it was one called Time to Forget. And Time to Forget, like many of their broadsides, is pretty snarky and sarcastic. It starts with a list of things that the reader should quote-unquote forget, such as forget the war in Vietnam, flowers are lovely, and forget police brutality, the cops are your friends. All sarcastic, <laughs> of course. Then in all caps it reads, you're free to forget, so forget. Follow the calm business tactics of the psychedelic shop, the I and thou, and all other marketeers of expanded consciousness, and dig yourself. Touch reality only for sex, only to eat, and only to join the artist liberation front for your own. Okay, so it was all basically like, fuck, sell out hippies, is where it comes from. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it starts with that as sort of the root. Yeah. And I should mention here that some of the Digger broadsides use what we might call dated language. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to share any of it in this episode, but it feels important to acknowledge. And it's also like a broader thing you see within counterculture movements of the 60s and 70s, where... Largely, though not exclusively, white groups like the Diggers would reclaim words in the service of what they saw as solidarity, but they weren't really like their words to reclaim. Right. And there was plenty of misogyny within these movements, too. This is kind of my, my disclaimer section. We'll talk more about misogyny later. Uh, it's something that'll come up more in part two when we're talking about food co-ops. Um, so <laughs> right. just a few things to be aware of. <laughs> and while this doesn't come up directly, there's... Also, just in general, a lot of cultural appropriation happening in the counterculture, um, especially the appropriation of religious practices from South and East Asia. So that feels important to acknowledge. Too. Well, and like the guy's so the name that you started with was like something coyote. And was he a totally. white guy or was he yeah. indigenous? Like He was yeah. not. No. And yeah. And you see that a lot of the people who started the diggers actually were like working class kids from New York City. Okay. And I don't go into that too much because one thing I really wanted to do is sort of destabilize this idea of like figureheads around the diggers because that happens a lot and it's just like this small handful of men. So I mention a few of them, but I don't talk about them. But that is where a lot of them yeah. come from. Okay. So, yeah, and I believe that was true of Peter Coyote as well, but I would fact check me on that. So, so around the same time that the diggers started distributing these broadsides, a police officer murdered Matthew Johnson, a black teenager, in the San Francisco neighborhood of Hunter's Point. This led to what's now called the Hunter's Point Uprising, which included six days of revolts. And Hunter's Point is often described as a forgotten uprising, but it did inspire two young radicals to form what would become a very well-known organization. Any idea what that might be? Is it the Black Panthers? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the community college kids, right? Totally. Yeah. So Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale formed the Black Panthers in October 1966, partly in response to the Hunter's Point uprising pretty much immediately after it. And the Panthers will come up again in this episode. It's basically impossible to talk about 1960s radical politics, especially in the Bay Area, without mentioning them. But I also know that you've done a whole episode on them before, so um, listeners can go find that as well. And during the Hunter's Point Uprising, the diggers performed puppet shows on the street, making fun of the National Guard, and they also <laughs> gave away free food. And they're making fun of the National Guard. I can't remember if this is before or after the Kent State Uprising. It must be before Kent you know, State. Yeah, but it's like, I, yeah, they're making sure. fun of armed people who are going to shoot some people in their movement pretty soon. So it's like not a... It's not nothing when you talk about making fun of, like, the National Guard in the street. You no, know? yeah. And I don't know more about this because I found it as, like, one, one throwaway line in one source. But, they, yeah, it wasn't nothing for sure. And while they technically began before Hunter's Point, a lot of people cite this uprising as when the diggers really started to gain traction and really started to do the work that they would become known for. So soon after, two diggers, Billy Murcott and Emmett Grogan, started daily free meals that they called feeds in the panhandle of Golden Gate Park. They had both lost their sources of income, and they wanted access to food and figured other people might too. It's always nice to have food. Um, they went to the produce market and got donations of chicken, turkey, and leftover vegetables, but didn't have access to a kitchen, and they needed to find a place to cook the food. So they went and stole two 20-gallon milk cans from an industrial dairy and cooked a stew right there in the panhandle. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they also created a flyer to advertise this first feed, which included what's now perhaps the most famous sticker slogan, which is, it's free because it's yours. Okay. Okay. Yes. I really yeah. like the idea of like, man, we're hungry. I've got an idea. 
let's feed everyone by getting donations. Like, I love that, like, can-do attitude. And I also love the, like, instead of it being like, other people are hungry. It was like, what are we going to eat today? I know. Let's start a movement. Totally. And yeah, it really came from them, you know, not having a source of income and really wanting to eat as well, right? So it starts in this very true mutual aid-based moment, not like a, yeah, not this charity kind of model. So at one early feed, um, some diggers jumped out of a van, and as they distributed meat, produce, and bread, they yelled, food is the medium. (laughs) Does this phrase remind you of anything? Uh, The medium is the message? No, I don't know. Oh, okay. Yes, it actually is that. Yeah. Okay. So it's an echo of Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message. Um, He was a Canadian media theorist who became really popular within the counterculture, which is funny because he was also this stodgy Catholic dude who is like much older than everyone else. But he argued that, to quote www.marshallmcluhan.com, the message of any medium or technology is the chain of scale or pace of pattern it introduces into human affairs. So free digger meals use the excess of waste of capitalism to nourish and modeled a slower pace of life in a coming together of community. They also reclaimed anti-capitalist patterns of space use by feeding people Mm. in a public park outside of the framework of for-profit restaurants and grocery stores. So they're really taking these media theory ideas from McLuhan and from other people and trying to put them into practice. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, they're very, like, they're sort of, like, a relationship between theory and on-the-ground work is is really inspiring to me. The most cliche word is praxis, but this is just, like, literally it. It is where theory and practice meet. They're not, like, oh, we should just do things or we should just think about things. They're, like, we should think about things and then do things. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And constantly be thinking and rethinking about them. Yeah. Cool. The diggers incorporate it. So they incorporated other aspects of their cultural work into the feeds. These included theater. They would screw on stew lids really tightly to force diners out of passivity. They'd have to, like, grapple with them to open the stew lids. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Fucking nerds. <laughs> I know. And then Emmett Grogan and Billy Murcott also built a giant frame of reference. So it was this giant doorway painted a golden orange that diners had to walk through before they were able to eat. <laughs> Nerds. And the idea was at the feeds, they'd have to leave, quote unquote, consumer culture at the door uh-huh. and instead fully participate in the ideals of the gift economy. Yeah, they were total nerds. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And digger papers were also distributed at the feeds. These digger papers were made by secretly using the mimeograph machine in the Students for a Democratic Society offices (laughs) in a building that belonged to the San Francisco meme troupe, which is really funny to me. Oh, it's nested. Yeah, it's like, fuck you, dad. We're using the mimeograph. Yeah. So one of my favorite papers is called Take a Cop to Dinner. And I'm kind of cheating because it was printed in September 1966 before the feeds began. But it's food-related, so I'm going to talk about it. So the background is the owner of a psychedelic shop in the Haight-Ashbury posted a -a take-a-cop-to-dinner sign in his store window in an attempt to try and build bridges with the cops, which inspired other neighborhood business owners to do the same. The diggers, yeah, who understandably hated the cops and critiqued the local merchants for their continued investment in consumer capitalism, decided to respond And you can see a scan of this broadside on the Digger's Archive, which is a website that has a ton of Digger materials on it. And it starts with a very strange poem about genitals and hydrogen bombs, which I'm not going to read because why? But then the broadside lists the ways various people and organizations, from racketeers to unions to the Catholic Church and Department of Mm -hmm. Justice, bribe cops to encourage them to turn a blind eye to things that were technically illegal, but in the service of upholding Mm -hmm. power. So the broadside becomes more and more specific and ultimately calling out Thielen's psychedelic shop and the nearby I Thou coffee shop before ending the list with cops take themselves to dinner by inciting riots. And this is printed and distributed in the weeks before the Hunter's Point uprising, which seems to gesture the fact that there was, you know, this feeling in the city even before this uprising happened about what was going on with the police. They also distributed leaflets for other events at their feeds, such as the one for the intersection game which was held on Halloween 1966. They invited pedestrians to walk in geometric shapes at the intersection of Haight and Ashbury to disrupt the flow of automobile traffic. 
And this was really successful. Around 600 people showed up to play. It caused a giant traffic jam, um, and five diggers were arrested. Okay, so this is like, so they're like writing sigils with their bodies in motion, like in the street. Is that the? I think so, yeah. It's sort of, yeah, walking in these funny shapes in order to, yeah, just to like tie up traffic. I, have you, there's that like kind of meme of like, the the circle of protection from a self-driving car where you like drive the like yellow line you like paint the yellow line around the car and then the car can't leave because it can't cross the yellow line or whatever you know i haven't seen that but that's brilliant oh yeah no and this just feels like that for the 60s yeah totally okay yeah they really do feel like even though we're talking about food and how their predecessor of you know Spoiler alert, things like Food Not Bombs, mm-hmm. they're also kind of a predecessor of meme culture. Cool. So that's like an interesting tie-in. Yeah. So I've read a bunch of times that the Digger Feeds inspired the Black Panther be- breakfast program. It's always felt like a stretch to me or like the story was more complicated. Um, and then I found a video of Digger Kent Minault where he talks about meeting Huey P. Newton in fall 1966. Oh. Newton, Newton did tell him he had heard of the Digger Feeds and implied that he found them inspiring. Okay. But followed that up by taking Minolt around Oakland and talking about the Black Panthers' plans to serve kids a fortifying breakfast before school. Newton also pointed out the yards of certain houses and mentioned that he'd been talking to the women who owned them about using them to grow fresh food. So it's possible that the Black Panthers took some inspiration from the diggers. But as Minolt says in the video, the Panthers' ideas were much more systematic than those of the diggers. And the Panthers definitely inspired the diggers in turn. So it's definitely a two-way street. And, and you know what? else is a two-way street (laughs) Uh, that felt so wrong coming from you (laughs) i I know (laughs) i loved it (laughs) medium is the message as relates to advertising Uh, help me out here um it's time for ad breaks unless you have coolers on media so yeah here's ads maybe You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to the European Political Systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So the feeds continued regularly until February 1967. 
uh, when they started mm-hmm. to peter off. There are a okay. lot of reasons why this happened. There were population pressures as young people from around the country flocked to the Haight-Ashbury, which is what would result in the Summer of Love in 1967. Okay, which I totally knew was 1967. I totally didn't have to completely change like my brain. It just feels like it should be 69, right? Right, right? <laughs> but apparently it was 67. No, but, I'm a good historian. Yeah. I'm not a historian. I'm a pop history writer. Anyway. Well, the thing, the thing too, is like the thing about doing a lot of food history is often I'll know about the food stuff, but not about everything else. Yeah. So there's actually not too much more I could tell you about the Summer of Love right. um, besides the fact that it was in 1967. So, um, yeah. Okay. No worries. Yeah. No, we all knew. Everyone knew that it was 67, <laughs> not 69. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. No, that actually makes sense because then it was like, yeah, that's like where it, because it kind of. As I'm, I'm under the impression a lot of the hippie stuff sort of like really started in the Bay Area and spread out. So it was like probably more generalized by 69 or something. This is me talking out of my ass. Totally. That is, yeah, that is the impression I get. Um, yeah, that it spread out and that as you're getting to 69, you're getting a lot of repression. You're getting a lot of breakdown in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, but then again, there are like many people in this world who know way more about this than me. So I'm just making an, you know, kind of making an educated guess based on what I know about the diggers and related projects. I'm like annoyed because I've done like probably, yeah, probably like 20 episodes total, like including like multiple parts or whatever related to late 60s, early 70s movements in the U.S. But I haven't covered this, like the Summer of Love stuff. So I'm like, Mm. I don't know. I haven't read those books yet. Maybe it Um, needs to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually had a bunch of places in the script where I was like, "You could do a whole episode on," okay. and then I like edited most of them out. No, nah, you could. You because could, I thought you should it, pitch them to me. I'm always looking. It's for actually stuff. just me me pitching other episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, another reason that there was a crackdown: city authorities were cracking down on free food distributions and ordered produce suppliers to stop donating to the diggers. Whoa! Classic repression from a city government. Yeah. But there is another reason that regular feeds stopped. Can you think of what group of people might have done most of the cooking and had to do a disproportionate amount of the labor? It's probably some group that I wouldn't even be able to think of because no one ever thinks of. Like, uh, yeah. like whatever the opposite of men is. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. No. I don't I... know. Sophie, do you happen to know any of this? Never heard of it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, yep. Yes, as we're jokingly gesturing at, it was the women who were involved. Oh, women, diggers. you do say women. <laughs> women. <laughs> there were women. Oh wow, so cool. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> women were responsible for cooking as well mm-hmm. as procuring food for the feeds, which at one point were daily and regularly served up to two hundred people. Holy shit! Which is a ton of work. Yeah. Um, as I was researching this, I was thinking about how I'm part of an autonomous community center here in Tucson, the BCC, where we do weekly meals that feed up to 40 or 50 people. And every once in a blue moon, I sign up to cook and it feels like a lot. So yeah. I can't imagine doing that every single day. No. So For like your shitty yeah. boyfriend who's just on drugs, who's like, come on, don't you care about the cause? Totally, yeah. <laughs> Who is like, who's making all the broadsides? And, yeah. you know, there definitely was this Putting his name on everything, yeah. Yeah, the men got to be thinkers, yeah. and the women had to do a lot of the grunt work. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so a great example of this is that even though Emmett Grogan claimed that he got all the food for the feeds, our uh, our pale Peter Coyote wrote about how the digger women would actually collect the donations because the produce vendors were more inclined to give food to them than to the men. Yeah, that makes sense. And, yeah, it's also really funny because a lot of the things that I saw were like, these burly Italian men at the produce market only want to give food to the women, uh, which I thought was kind of hilarious in a vague, like leaning into ethnic stereotypes way. (laughs) But it might have happened. (laughs) I read an oral history with a digger named Judy Goldhoff, who is one of the women who would go down to the produce market. She also talks about gleaning in nearby agricultural fields. They would go out and gather produce. Yeah, like zucchini and onions that get left behind during the mechanical harvesting process. And she also mentions a number of women who were involved in the feeds, including a group of students, either like from Antioch College on break or dropouts. That wasn't totally clear to me, but had come from Antioch College, as well as someone named Nina Blassenheim. And Blassenheim comes up a bunch of times in these oral history interviews as bottom lining the feeds. But I haven't been able to find out more about her. 
But I do want to name her again, Nina Blassenheim, because according to these women, she did really important work making these feeds happen. The poet Diane DePrima was also involved in The Diggers, and I will admit that I wrote more about this in an article for Gastro Obscura, but I'm not going to go a ton into it for contractual reasons. Ah, fine. I needed to She wrote one of my favorite pieces of poetry ever, the... It takes all of us pushing on this from every direction. Yeah, her revolutionary letters are amazing. You should read them. She's one of my favorite poets. I have a tattoo of one of her lines of poetry. So I'm a huge Diane de Prima fan. um, And her involvement with the diggers was pretty peripheral. Mm -hmm. um, But it is interesting. And you can find stuff about that online. I was like working on that piece and this at the same time and got into kind of Mm -hmm. sticky. Like they need to be different scopes kind of thing is that piece out yet that people can read it is yeah it's on gastro obscura so you should be able to find it just googling like gastro obscura diggers or yeah or or run awry yeah you know whatever you want to google so even after the feed started to wane in spring 1967 the diggers continued to do mutual aid in addition to their spectacles parades and other theatrical events they opened free stores that offered clothing and products that were procured both through donation and theft. Oh, yeah. And when police would inquire about who was in charge of these stores, the diggers, in true anarchist fashion, would tell them that if they wanted to see someone in charge, they'd have to be the one in charge. <laughs> they'd basically be like, there are no managers. You're the manager. <laughs> they would also invite people to take turns being the manager of the store, which from what I can tell mostly meant helping customers find what they were looking for, or suggesting clothing, things mm-hmm. like that. They also operated at least one crash pad to house the young people pouring into the Haight-Ashbury. So a housing space that people could stay at and live at. So you mentioned, because earlier, the only specific political ideology you've named with them is like Marxism from the the, a, the ALF, the thing that came before. Um, in, in, in my research, I had, which was very minimal, but I read about the Diggers as an explicitly anarchist organization. Um, do you know like when that shift happened or if it was like a little bit more loose than that? It was just like, whatever, we clearly don't want anyone in charge and we just use Marx for like, a way of understanding the way that, like, economics works, or? Yeah, so from my reading, which I think, once again, somebody else could go way more into this side of things, but they were, um, a lot of what they were doing was really rooted in everyday life, right? And Mm -hmm. so they were very anarchist in their approach, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the, the writing they were doing, a lot of the theory and discussions they were having had more to do with what was happening on the ground in San Francisco. Okay. So I would say that from what I can glean, they were definitely an anarchist project. They were also like so many radicals at the time, super Marxist influence. Mm-hmm. I would say that they were, they were mostly anarchists. I would define them. That is the label that makes the most sense. Okay. Um, but it does feel a little bit loosey-goosey. Like, I'm not sure if every digger would identify that way, you know? Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me. And, yeah, that that tracks and is, is an interesting... I like that everyone's the manager, but I like how it, like, runs up against this hard wall when you're like, you're the manager, and, like, no, don't make a cop the manager. I have one rule. I know, totally. <laughs> like, yeah. But also, it probably, like, scares the... No cop is going to be like, yeah, that's right, I am the manager here now, right? You know? Yeah, I feel like they have this really, like, whole huge thing about disorientation, right? Mm -hmm. So they're disorienting this cop. Yeah, yeah. You know, just throwing him into confusion. No, I like it. Yeah. And they also continued food-based projects. A lot of the work that Dan DePrima did was from this later era. She moved after the feeds had ended. Flyers from this era show free distribution of lettuce and information about digger-sponsored spaghetti dinners held at local churches. Mm, A lot of the flyers were handwritten. On one, BYOB stands for Bring Your Own Bowl, which I thought was pretty funny. (laughs) Um, And also during their feeds, they would often ask people to bring their own bowl. And there's lots of, like, ideas about why this was. Some people are just like, they didn't have bowls. And other people are like... They wanted to make sure people were like active participants and not passively eating. The I can food. tell you why I think it was. So there's all. Why do you? I think used it was? to eat at and cook for a lot of different food nut bombs, and the one that I went to that eventually was like, no, whatever. You have to bring your own dish, was so that they didn't have to wash all the dishes. See, that makes so much sense, and it's so funny to me because I also have done similar things throughout my life. And yeah. I, was, I was so deep in the history that that never occurred to me. <laughs> no, no, I mean, yeah. But obviously, like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I was like, oh, it's it's participatory. Yes, yeah, participatory doing the fucking dishes. <laughs> like, Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I was like, however, I was like really angry about it. I was like, 
I, I was probably 21 and I was like, this creates a barrier, you know? And like, yeah, cause you know, not everyone who's uh, going without a house is like carrying around a bowl or whatever, but honestly, most people are. And in a lot of photos, there's some amazing photos in the Digger archives of the early feeds. And you see people eating out of like soup cans, all sorts of recycled material. Yeah. I do think they did down the line start providing things for people to eat out of. But yeah, people were very improvisational with what was a bowl. So. <laughs> cool. I've definitely eaten food nut bombs on a card on a piece of cardboard. Oh, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or the like empty bean can. Yeah, totally. So um, now we're going to get to bread and we're going to touch a little bit on some whole wheat bread stuff, although I think different from what you went into before. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about digger bread. Have you ever heard of the digger bread recipe? Does it involve dipping it in melted cheese? It this does is my attempt to bring fondue. So we're not having a fondue. Oh, <laughs> you were trying to bring yeah. the fondue into it yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I know about digger bread is... I have this uh, I have this understanding that could be totally wrong that the reason that like whole grain and whole wheat bread is popular in like healthy food in in the United States period is because of some weird anarchists in the bay in the 60s along with tie-dye. Those are like the things that I'm like aware of or have been told that they influenced. I'm so glad you brought that up because admittedly when I was writing this script there were definitely things that had to stay on the cutting room floor mm -hmm. and I have read about the influence of the diggers and whole wheat bread and then was struggling to, like, find it again and didn't want to put something in I couldn't 100% cite. Okay. Well, I'll claim it apocryphally. But I'm pretty sure that that, yeah, they had this huge influence on whole wheat bread across the country. The diggers also had a huge, they, like, popularized tie-dye in within the United States, it did draw on more traditional forms of dyeing, I believe, from Southeast Asia, but I'm not totally sure. Um, but yeah, that's also another thing that someone could look into and get excited about. Um, I can so, never be excited about yeah. tie-dye. <laughs> I don't know. Well, tie-dye is... I know, bad. and I... Have you noticed I that? feel like so... It's like all the like metalheads I know are really into tie-dye, and I'm, I'm like just slightly too old because... I was around the worst era of hippies, which is the early 90s and like mid 90s hippies. The like oh, yeah, tail yeah, yeah. end of the Grateful totally. Dead, the most like consumerist, burned out, like apolitical, misogynist hippies in the world. It, it from my point of view. And so I have this like really deep like fuck that version of hippie. And so the version of hippie that I like is when you like look and they all look like medieval peasants. I'm like, that shit rules. You could be in a cult, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> I say with my hood on, really? wearing all black. And yeah. Um, I think that from what I can tell, the diggers look exactly like what we think of as the worst kind of hippie, which is interesting to think about because, because they're a lot awesome. of that, they're awesome. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of hippies of that era were awesome. Yeah. And, you know, like all things, it gets co-opted and watered down. Yeah. All things within the, you know, within our like super capitalist United States. Yeah. Gets, becomes this other thing. Totally. And the fact that I'm angry about what happened when I was 14 should have no influence on whether or not a doom metal band wants to make a tie-dye version of their shirt. And I actually totally. think, I actually think it's cool that it's coming back. I'm just like... It's, like, not quite for me. Even though I love natural dyeing and all that stuff. Like, I have a whole bucket of uh, black walnut rinds that I'm going to dye some of my dresses mm -hmm. with next week. Um, but they're not going to be, like, black walnut tie-dye dresses. No, although I'm like, what if I just tried to get over it by, like, no, I probably won't. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> totally. Anyway. Although this is a great time. Wait, mm -hmm. this is a great time to talk about my boots. I'd like to talk about my boots. Is that okay? Okay, let's talk about your boots. So I have this pair of boots that I originally got because um, a friend's kid was having her bat mitzvah and she asked everyone to wear like flowery things. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love a clothing assignment from a child. It's one of my favorite things. Okay. And so I went all out and I found at a thrift store these Doc Martens, except that they have like hippie paisley flower print all Hell over yeah. them. And I, I don't wear them very much because um, anyone who knows me knows that I mostly wear all black. 
But I put them on today because it felt appropriate. I really yeah. like that combo. Um, the do- Doc Ren, Martin, are you going then, to like, stick your leg up at some point for us? Because I, because yeah, I can, I can totally wait. I'm really clumsy, <laughs> but I'm going to try to do this. I see yeah. the bottom of a boot. I see the side of the boot. <laughs> they look amazing. They do. They look really fucking cool. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Enough about yeah. me. No, you'll know that I've finally gotten uh, over any not... self-consciousness when my hair is just in a crown braid with flowers in it. That's when you know I've just like finally just like stopped. You would look really worrying. fucking cool. I know. Totally. Thanks. You would. Thanks. I highly recommend anyway. this. Yeah. Full support. <laughs> so back to bread. In June 1967, a few months after the feed stopped happening regularly, some diggers who were baking alongside Ruth and Walt Reynolds, who were volunteers at All Saints Church, turned 400 pounds of flour and a bunch of other ingredients into whole wheat bread, which they distributed to residents of the Haight-Ashbury. The event was super successful, and the diggers soon opened a regular free bakery out of the church. They distributed about 200 loaves each on Wednesdays and Saturdays. That's amazing. I've been challenged to do an ad break by my very charming and clever podcaster friends. <laughs> but I feel like the diggers would just be like, it's free because it's yours. So maybe as you listen to these ads, if they're for anything that you have to pay for, I don't know, maybe think about how you don't have to pay for them, you know? Yeah. I couldn't, I, as somebody who recently can't eat gluten, I and all gluten things are more expensive than non-gluten things, I think non-gluten bread should be free too. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> this this podcast is brought to you by free bread of glutinous and non-glutinous varieties. For sure. And if any other ad creeps in and it's not for something free, that was a mistake. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about history and what a period we're living through right now. Specifically, when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help you understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week, where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with, what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in Season 3? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events. Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests. And the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. 
Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785. For any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. And we're back. Oh. Okay, but wait. So you're talking about all this. I think what's really interesting, you talk about how like um, there was like cross. They didn't influence the Black Panthers free breakfast program, but both were aware of each other, right? Yes. Yeah. And both of them, well, the feed wasn't, but the both were, were out of churches. And this is the kind of thing that I feel like sometimes gets left out of history is like when when radicals go over it. It's like, no, that's that that's not nothing. That's not a meaningless detail, you know, that it was totally. that it was out of this church yeah. that was like, sure, you all can come bake 400 loaves of bread a week here. Totally. Yeah. And I can't remember what kind of church it was, but it was some kind of I, I grew up in New York where there the Protestant population is not huge mm-hmm. and growing up I used to call them love your neighbor Protestants. So like, oh, the, like the nice ones, social <laughs> instead of the evangelicals yeah, or like, whatever. No, but like the you know social justice oriented, yeah. like really awesome sort of, uh, you know I don't know that much about it, but like theologies that are are centered around liberation yeah. of of all peoples versus like trying to take away everyone's rights. Yeah, and that I don't remember exactly what the All Saints Church was, but I they were certainly of that. Variety. That makes sense. Yeah, so, at least at the yeah. time. Yeah. So, but. But the kitchen in the church didn't have baking trays. So Reynolds had this idea that they could use coffee cans to bake the bread. Oh. And I find this part really interesting because even though it seems like it was just a practical solution to the lack of baking trays, and it probably was, it meant that the bread was literally made in packaging for a beverage that played an intrinsic part in the rise of capitalism, the very capitalism that the diggers so opposed. And so I kind of wanted to do a brief coffee and capitalism okay. aside. Okay, Is let's do okay? it. As a non-coffee drinker, I'm going to feel so good at the end of this. Or I'm going to feel really bad. I don't know. I feel like neither. I feel like we're all the products of history in such complex ways. Um, no, I don't do anything that's a compromise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she this said after introducing yeah. ads. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. This is like the one paragraph version of like books have been written about this. Okay. So, Coffee came to Europe from the Arab world, and it caught on in the 17th century in, like, Western Europe. It started to replace alcohol as the everyday drink. So instead Hmm. of being slightly drunk all the time, people in Europe were caffeinated and able to work longer hours and also talk really fast. (laughs) Coffee houses. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Do you like that I wrote a joke into this script? Because I was like, Sophie and Margaret are so good at jokes. I'm going to have to, like... You know, keep up with the Joneses. No, no, it's good. My very, very cheesy coffee joke. Yeah. Coffee houses became popular in London under Cromwell and the the London Stock Exchange. Uh, No, he's a demon. He comes up as (laughs) as evil every single time. I'm like, is there something I don't know? Yeah, he genocided Um, Ireland. (laughs) Well, yeah. Anyway, you already Um, knew that. Anyway. I already knew that, yeah. Uh, And... He became, or coffee become. he didn't become popular in London. Coffee becomes popular in London under Cromwell. The London Stock Exchange and the contemporary insurance industry grows out of these coffee houses. Do not ask me to tell you more because I don't remember any of it, Um, but fascinating. And Adam Smith literally wrote The Wealth of Nations in a coffee house. And then during the Industrial Revolution, coffee allowed workers to grind harder and for things like night shifts to exist because they could drink coffee and stay awake. And the concept of the coffee break comes from a factory owner in Denver in the 1950s who gave his workers two mandatory coffee breaks a day to increase productivity. So what you're saying is to be anti-capitalist, everyone should be drunk all of the time. I like how you came to this conclusion. I don't know. I'm not going to answer that. This is too big of a question. I had two cups of coffee this morning. Um, Yeah, no, I'm... I'm not actually anti. Yeah. <laughs> Do what makes you feel good and stand against oppression, everyone. Yeah. yeah. 
And you can be awake while you stand against a... Pr- you can be productive in a lot of ways, you know? There is good yeah. productivity. That is, like, one thing that people are, like... When I'll, I understand all of the, like, don't work so much. Capitalism wants you to work so much. I'm like, but we could also work to fight it, too. Totally, <laughs> and that's still yeah. work, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and people have different levels of that. Yeah. I love getting shit done. Yeah. So I'm... I. I think we're on a similar wavelength that way, but yeah. yeah. So the diggers baking whole wheat bread and coffee cans really kind of in my mind fits with their whole using the excess of capitalism for revolutionary means thing, Mm -hmm. both practically and metaphorically. And it also kind of fits with that food is the medium thing, right? Because bakers and eaters are thinking about the relationship between capitalism and food by baking coffee cans. I know that this is a stretch, but like so much of what they did was a stretch too, like trying to convince people of things that I feel okay about making this connection. Yeah, I mean, they literally had people walk through a frame of reference before they, like, it's fine. It's good, even. Totally. And then I should also say, I have actually not tried baking the digger bread recipe, and it's because now a lot of coffee cans are lined with toxic material. There are some that aren't, and you can do research into it, But I'm, like, a very anxious person, Mm -hmm. and I would just, like, somehow convince myself, even if I had, like, completely checked that it was fine with a certain coffee can, that it somehow wasn't. So I haven't actually had a chance to make this bread. You could also just make it not in a coffee can. That's another option. There are recipes out there online. Okay. See, now I'm like, but we could make, like, a... You could... We could make and sell a bespoke coffee can that doesn't have anything bad in it. That's for making your bread. You can buy that. It oh, really? exists. Okay. But it just seemed too far. No, yeah. And also it yeah. goes against the concept to some degree. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be mad at myself. I like kitchen gadgets. Like Totally same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. But, yeah. So these free bakeries spread around the bay. It this was helped by coverage in the Berkeley Barb, which was an underground newspaper that had a circulation of eighty five thousand readers, which is huge for an underground <laughs> yeah, newspaper. That's, that's not so underground. That's amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the barb covered the free bakeries extensively, including one that sprang up at the Olampali Ranch Commune. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Mm-hmm. In one article, a journalist for the barb writes, a bakery owner decided to drop out and laid the ovens, mixers, and other accessories on the ranch. In turn, the residents of the ranch are baking bread and distributing it free throughout the Bay Area. In the photo that ran with the article, there are topless young people, mostly women, needing bread on a table covered with empty coffee cans. This seems like regular hippie mm-hmm. shit, but I do want to acknowledge there's this really complex intertwining of sexual liberation and the patriarchal male gaze that women in the 1960s and 70s communes faced in a pretty intense way. So just want to say that. Speaking of photos, there's a pretty amazing one of kids cutting into digger bread at the Free Huey rally in February 1968. The photo was taken by Ruth Marianne Baruch. It was in support of Huey P. Newton, whom Minault had toured Oakland with, as I mentioned earlier, and who was accused of allegedly killing a police officer in the midst of defending himself from police violence. And based on print materials I've seen, like flyers, it seems like at least some of the diggers were pretty active in this Free Huey campaign. So this continued. Sometimes I think that the relationship between the diggers, from what I've seen, it seems like the relationship between the diggers and the Black Panthers was overstated and a bit of wishful thinking on Mm -hmm. the diggers' part. But there was, like, actual, real, tangible solidarity that was happening as well. And then, in May 1968, Ruth and Walter Reynolds started a free bakery at the Resurrection City encampment. Have you heard of Resurrection City? No. This sounds amazing. So I hadn't heard about it until I started researching the diggers. Christian hippie homeless commune? Not exactly. Although I was just Christian, going on the names. Resurrection makes me think Christian. It, it it was Christian. Yeah. So Resurrection City, it was a six-week tent city on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. That was part of the Poor People's Campaign. Oh, okay. Which was a multiracial movement for economic justice mm-hmm. that in particular brought together Chicano, Black, and white Appalachian activists. And there's way more to say about Re- Resurrection City than I can in this episode. This is another one of those you should yeah, do an yeah. episode about. Um. But here's, this, here's a brief snapshot. The Poor People's Campaign was started by Martin Luther King Jr. and other members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm-hmm. After King was assassinated in April 1968, organizers carried on the campaign and demanded a quote-unquote economic bill of rights that included a living wage for all workers and an adequate income for those unable to work. The camp was ultimately evicted on June 24th of that year, the day after its permit expired, 
But it did lead to more money for social services, including an expansion of the food stamps program and more funding for Head Start, as well as free and reduced lunch in Mississippi and Alabama. And it was also described by participants as practice for living together in a largely collectively run city. Residents described it as a city where you didn't have to pay taxes and you didn't experience police brutality or go to jail. So pretty important stuff there. Um, The free bakery at the encampment made 15 loaves an hour. The bread usually came right out of the oven and was immediately served to camp residents as residents usually got only one hot meal a day because of funding stuff Mm -hmm. in the kitchen. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference camp organizers were really impressed by the bakery, and they even moved their own coffee shop next door to it. Coffee again. I know. Always coffee. We now live in a world where we have to stay awake, you know? Yeah. I'm awake right now. I know. I'm awake too, but I've also had two cups of coffee, and I actually took my ADHD medicine today because I was like, this is probably the one day where being really chatty is good. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. This is my socializing for the week. Yeah. <laughs> so digger bread also spread throughout the counterculture and recipe form. The mm-hmm. recipe was originally distributed as a digger leaflet entitled Free Bread. It included a list of where to buy wholesale flour cheaply in the bay, and instructions for making 12 loaves at once, since they assumed the people using the recipe would be doing so to open other free bakeries. It also included the stipulation that, although anyone was welcome to use the recipe, you always had to give the bread away for free. Hell yeah. I know, awesome, right? But later versions of the recipe don't even mention the free bakeries. So there's one that's printed in both the underground newspaper Northwest Passage in 1969 and in the first ever 1970 issue of Mother Earth News, mm-hmm. that makes no mention of the bakeries, and it totally relocates the bread just to, like, the n- domestic sphere. So the head note, do you know what a head note is? No. Wait, is it the main thing that you taste in wine? <laughs> no. It's that little paragraph before a recipe that people love to complain about. You mean the 18 pages of... <laughs> okay, well, that happens on Google because it has to do with, like, Google algorithms. It has to do with, like, copyright stuff, right? Because you can't copyright a recipe, yeah. but you can. So in order to... I'm not even mad about it. I just click the skip to recipe yeah. thing. But headnotes can be really cool in, like, a formally... You know, when people are thoughtful about them and are including yeah, fair enough. information. Yeah. yeah, but this headnote just says, Every time we make this bread, it's a big hit around the house. Have a big hit around your house. And in a 1971 Berkeley Barb article that does mention free bakeries, um, the article says that a small town of Weed, California, would be a great place to open one. And then it says, invite the local sheriff's deputy over for coffee and show him you have nothing to Oh, hide. my God. It's gone full circle. <laughs> oh, know. my God. That's so heartbreaking. This is yeah. This is I the know. encapsulation of what happened to the hippies all in one moment. And it happens within just a few years. Yeah, you strip away all of the... Radicals create something new, and then other people strip away the... Then they only take the ephemera, right? Because the the bread is the the product that is created by a revolutionary process. And so then people are like, fuck the revolution. We just want the bread. Yeah. God. And now, unless you're looking at the Digger Archive site or a few other places that are specifically focused on the diggers, you can, like, Google around for the Digger bread recipe, and you literally just find it as this, like, fun hippie recipe, and it never mentions anything more about the diggers, which is really disappointing. Can we put the the good version in the show notes? Eh? Eh? Yeah, I think I can. Yeah, I can send it to you for sure. With the caveat that this whole coffee can thing makes me really nervous. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's a good point. Everyone you know what? People have that. to get, yeah, people Google it yourself. Yeah. We, we told you yeah. how to find it. Yeah. Do, as, do as thou it's will. It's very easy. If you just Google digger bread recipe, all the recipes themselves are good. They just yeah. don't always have information about, um, right. you know, who the diggers were. Which you are providing right now. So consider Which that your right head now. note. Yep. Giant head note to a recipe. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it'd be funny if this thing. whole transcript was just the head note on a, anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Honestly, like, there's a lot of writing projects I've thought about that would just be something like that. And uh, it's hilarious. And also, I've spent more time thinking about it than I'd like to admit. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, to wrap to wrap up our diggers, mm-hmm. uh, 
while free bakeries persisted into the 70s, including in other places across the country, and there were digger groups in other places across the country, even though San Francisco was the main place. Mm -hmm. The San Francisco diggers disbanded as a recognizable group in 1969. So even though they only existed for three years, they had a really profound impact on food-based mutual aid in the United States. Yeah. The same year they disbanded, in 1969, a group occupied an empty lot that became Berkeley's People's Park, which I know more recently has had some challenges around it. Yeah. And I know that people are, like, struggling to keep it being a People's Park. Yeah. I don't know what the latest is on that. But at the People's Park, occupants planted a garden and, influenced by the diggers, shared free community meals, often making stews improvised from whatever people brought that day. The diggers were also a major inspiration for Food Not Bombs, which you've also done an episode on previously and people should check out. Um, But in case people didn't catch that one, Food Not Bombs is an international decentralized organization that serves free vegan meals, primarily from donated and dumpstered ingredients in public places. It started in 1980 as part of the anti-nuclear movement. And then in Hawaii, there's a group called Eating in Public that holds dinners inspired by the diggers. And Gay Chan and Nandita Sharma, who founded it, wrote about the project, sorry for a plug, (laughs) for an anthology I edited called Uh Nourishing Resistance. But it was just like too perfect of a tie-in. I wanted to make sure it made it into this episode, especially because there's this one paragraph that throughout the entire, like, multi-year process of editing this book would put such a huge smile on my face. Like, sometimes when things would get tough with editing, I'd, like, go read this paragraph to remember why I was doing what I was doing. So yeah, now yeah, I yeah. want to share it with you as a note to end on. So this is from uh, the article by Chan and Sharma. Digger's dinners have taken place in small settings among friends, as well as in spaces open to all. The events are basically potlucks, but with one rule designed to keep capitalist markets at bay. Each participant's contribution must be primarily made from ingredients that they have either grown, hunted, fished, foraged, gleaned, bartered, found, been gifted, or stolen. <laughs> At the start of each dinner, participants are invited to explain the backstory of the ingredient. At our largest digger's dinner, among the last of the participants to speak was a tiny 80-year-old woman. Stepping up onto a stool to reach the microphone, she began by saying, I read about this in the newspaper and realized I've been waiting for this my whole life. So I went to the store and stole these bananas and these apples. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so interesting to me that diggers, because... They're obviously the lesser known diggers, right? But there was more of them and they lasted longer and they also had more impact. The original diggers, I don't think they ever saw a harvest. I don't think they ever actually got any food out of the land. And that's not to say what they didn't, what they did. I mean, what they did was revolutionary, right? The original, what, 17th century diggers or whatever. But it, but it didn't actually have as much of a material impact on as many people's lives. And so it's just interesting to me that these are the like, the like lesser known diggers, right? Even though they had this like massive impact on culture, but also just directly fed so many people for so long. Totally, that is interesting. And yeah, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, I do know that the diggers really, that San Francisco diggers really resisted this whole like, um, I'll call it the famous man notion because it's almost always a man. Mm-hmm. But they were, like, very resistant to giving interviews to, you know, to identifying themselves as individuals. Not in, like, a That's hiding cool. their identity way, but they were just, like, really focused on the collective. Yeah. And I wonder if not having, you know, there's not, like, a famous digger. Yeah. Who's, like, famous mostly for being a digger in the way that you have with some other movements. And I do wonder if that's part of why they're less known. I also think that just, like, when you get in first, when you're the first, the diggers, and also anything you do in, like, Renaissance-era England is going to have more impact on history than, like, any other time or place to be a person, you know? Totally. Like, because colonialism. But Especially within, like, the Anglosphere, right? Where we're, yeah. we're reading and writing in English. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. Well, uh, thank you so much. Um, and what's going to... One, what are we going to hear about on Wednesday so people can be excited? And two, uh, tell us more about you and plug things. Cool. So 
We're going to talk about food co-ops, which doesn't sound very exciting and wouldn't have sounded very exciting to me before I did research, but I promise you it will be exciting. I'm excited. There are some very cool radical roots that have been pretty intensely covered up with, uh, with food co-ops in this country. And then as far as plugs, I did want to mention that anthology I edited, Nourishing Resistance, which is available from PM Press. It has incredible contributors. People should buy it if you can or like see if your library has it. And yeah, I, I recommend reading it not because I edited it, but because the contributors are so incredible. And um, specifically two pieces in that. The Gay Chan and Nandita Sharma article that I quoted, Remaking the Commons, A History of Eating mm-hmm. in Public. And then another essay by Madeline Lane McKinley called Notes on Utopian Failure in Commune Kitchens, which, while it didn't like directly go into my research, it did influence a lot of the background thinking around gender in this era. So, um, yeah, those are my plugs. I exist only on the Instagram at at Renarai, which is my name. You can follow me there. Yay! And that's been part one of Ren Explains Things to Me. <laughs> we'll be back. back. On Wednesday. Wednesday! Bye! Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.